Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Nine spectacular new releases are arriving on DVD for the very first time from the Warner Archive Collection. We're here to shout it out and celebrate. Now, one thing all of these different programs have in common is they were created initially for the small screen. But you probably have a bigger screen at home than was originally in the homes when these programs were made. And we're going to celebrate these big events created for television as we count down the nine new releases. Put the black flag on your turntable and get ready for a TV party. Oh, you know what I personally did for all these is um, I set up my TV in a special way where I was about four inches from the And you kept on screen. fiddling with antenna that wasn't attached? No, 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 no antenna. I went so modern that this became an immersive, almost cinerama of my Excellent. home. Excellent. And now let's get to the nine. Yeah. Well, the first of the nine causes a revolution because <laughs> it's number nine. Actually, it's number six, season six of the FBI in nine color. Six. Starring Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., we're happy to bring you the complete sixth season. And we'll be talking at length about that shortly. We also have seven made-for-television feature films, some of which were actually pilots for projected television series that never came to be and one that eventually came to be. Alternate Earth TV. So we'll be talking about those. And why don't we rattle them off, gentlemen? The Eyes of Charles Sand. Sidekicks. Kung Fu, the movie. Club Med. The Spirit. Killjoy. Fatal Deception, Mrs. Lee Harvey Oswald. And then we round it all off with a little bit of Christmas cheer. Ho, 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 ho. Well, we need a little Christmas right this very minute, and we have it with two television specials. We have from Ruby Spears, The Cabbage Patch Kids' First Christmas. And then on the same disc from Hanna-Barbera, we have The Little Troll Prince. So it's never too early to start celebrating Christmas, and that's why we'll have Christmas in October by announcing the sixth season of the FBI, which has nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> oh, 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 you're busted. Well, it keeps on giving because this is the sixth season. The sixth of nine. It's now 1970 to 71. The world is changing. Sideburns are coming down. But the, Even on TV. What I noticed in all the episodes, you know, sort of a commonality is that they're just one step behind this new breed of criminals. A, the primetime position it occupied sort of made it the token adult drama, which right. meant they had a plethora of available guest stars, which the writers and the directors took advantage of. And the show's even more of an anthology show yes. with the Erskine. And the net is always there. And the net okay. is always tight. But it's less procedural and more about the story yeah. of the transgressors. And, and that, there's some amazing guest stars. Honestly, I wanted to see more of. I just would have rather the FBI shows up at the end and, and arrest them because I loved all of the guest star combos. Dan, who are some of the guest stars? Oh, well, you've got uh, Martin Sheen. Yes. Joan Van Ark. Yes. Billy D. Williams. Robert Lucia, one of my very favorite actors, Bradford Dillman. Oh. Dabney Coleman. Uh, and, of course, William Shatner in his burgeoning post-Trek period. 
you know, he was soon to go on the other side of the law. Yeah, not, this is, not this the is bad this. side. William Shatner playing about as desperate and as dangerous a character as you can imagine. A mob drug smuggler who's hooked on dope and has gone rogue. And this is when he was also doing industrial films. Yeah. His career was taking many different paths. And he was doing movies like Impulse and then shortly uh, The Devil's Reign. Yeah, he like Pray for the Wildcats in this era. Yeah. Much, that was Bill stayed busy. Too. And then TV found its love for him again with T.J. Hooker and then one once again, with Boston Legal is Danny Cole. Not to mention many Star Trek feature films, yes, yes. including one which he directed. The guy but anyway, what does God uh, want with my starship? Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. and William Reynolds and Philip Abbott lead the crime-solving spree on each episode. Producer Quinn Martin made this a really bellwether series. It's interesting to understand that this was the only television series being made here at Warner Brothers during this transitional period as the television group was ramping up again. Now, I wanted to ask, in the Shatner episode, when they were at the border town, uh-huh. that very much looked like the western town. Absolutely. Okay. The it, way they use the lot, yeah. including the western town, the Laramie Street, which is sadly no longer here, the way they would just repurpose little corners of the lot is astounding yeah. if and you I, watch I, all the episodes. I noticed they use the same like little uh, business districts in the valley over and over mm-hmm. again. They're like, we're in Oklahoma, we're in Philadelphia. But it didn't work because the area around here at the time was very, it could be anywhere. As long as you don't notice that it's the same mountain. It's exactly the yeah. same. And, and some of it is, there's a lot of Toluca Lake just Yeah, that's what right I mean, like, just street. right here. Right but that makes it kind of fun. There was a good episode with extremists, bombers. Well, you can see like like what was going on in the real world really creeps into the show very much so because we've got, you know, college kid terrorists. We've got Vietnam vets who are cracking up. Right. We've got rampant and explicit heroin and drug use. You've got kids out on the streets. I mean, it was really like like... Society was very much unraveling or changing, depending on your perspective, and that very much creeped into FBI and other shows like Dragnet at the time. It is a time capsule because it wasn't shying away from what was happening in the world. It was addressing them, as other shows were at the time as well. But I think that the support we've had from fans of the series, that's why we've accelerated the releases bringing more releases per year so that we can eventually get all nine out because people have been hungering for the series for so long. We're delighted to be able to bring it their way and also want to remind people that if you go back in your iTunes library and look at earlier incarnations of Warner Archive podcasts, you will find our interview with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. himself, yes. Yes. which we conducted at the time that we were releasing season one. And we recommend that once you're done listening to this podcast, and please stay with us to the end, you go cue that up because it's a great interview with a great gentleman. And I just want to give a shout out to the wonderful Ford cars that are in this season. 1970 muscle cars. You really it's, get it's, to see the LTD. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. boy. And Inspector Erskine's car. It's like, you're in a muscle car, Inspector. They're all in muscle cars. The criminal. And it's the, pretty awesome. The FBI, it's great. I, I so wanted to FBI find FBI season six, six discs, twenty six episodes, nineteen seventy to seventy one from ABC. Now from Warner Brothers and Warner Archive Collection on DVD. We're delighted to bring it to you. Now we'll move ahead to a little later in the same decade with the Eyes of Charles Sand, which is the first of these TV movies that we have. 
that actually served as well as pilots for series that never went to series. Now, for something that was a rejected pilot, I've noticed that uh, quite a few of these people have a very long memory for because they were played as movies of the week and they right. they stuck in people's minds. And The Eyes of Charles Sand is one that is a fan favorite. We've had a lot of requests for it. And most of these that we're going to talk about, with one or two exceptions, people aren't even aware that they were pilots for projected series. And certainly The Eyes of Charles Sand stood alone on its it, own and you wouldn't think that it was for it, any kind of you could see it as a setup for like in x files i can see sure. dead people or, or you know the show investigative the, show the, the sixth sense was very similar yeah. to the eyes of right. charles sand but eyes of charles sand has something that other supernatural shows didn't which is adam west and joan bennett <laughs> <laughs> well to be fair joan bennett was in the dark shadows movie. oh it's true yes yeah. <laughs> and but not with adam west not with adam west. i would have loved if the show become a series because this i mean just briefly a very you know, the setup is series peter haskell plays a businessman whose right. uncle dies and he inherits the family legacy the family curse whatever you want to look at it of a second sight yeah. And with the second sight compels him to help those who are in desperate trouble. He's and a traveling angel of doom. And Joan Bennett plays his aunt, who right. represents the mystical side of life. Yeah. And Adam West plays his best friend, who is a psychiatrist and represents the scientific side of life. And I would have loved a show with those two as recurring characters every week. Adam West is a straight guy. It takes you a the back voice of a little bit. Yeah, as the voice of reason. But he does do his Adam West voice. Yeah. Now, to give a little background in time period, this is 1972. Mm -hmm. The networks were all all making their own made-for-television movies as well as getting made-for-television movies from the studios which served as pilots and non-pilots. The backdoor pilot world. And a lot of this began, uh, to this day there's an industry term MOW, Movie of the Week, and the Movie of the Week was actually a series on ABC that was created by Barry Diller. Who was Whatever an ABC, happened to that guy? Yeah, he was an ABC <laughs> executive who came up with the concept of a 90-minute Tuesday night movie that would be, you know, 72 minutes of film, wouldn't cost the same as a bigger budget Hollywood film, be able to have tight storytelling. And these were done mostly by uh, major studios, including Warner's, mm -hmm. as well as by the network. And, of course, one of our most famous and successful Warner Archive collection releases and our earliest that we did a second time to do it even better, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. That's one of the most famous movies of the week. And this fits into that realm because, and, and I, again, it was people who were kids at the time, this was their first exposure to these horror movies. Absolutely. Yeah. And his power of seeing dead people, these people dead people looked dead they had very white eyes and there was a very it was very haunting and it's still very effective but imagine being a kid on a little tv late at night and Not, you're watching yeah, it alone uh, and it freaks you out the underlying mystery is actually very engaging in this i mean it has very sort of gothic Edgar Allan poe but also gaslight there's a lot going on there's some very good acting in this in that you know when the reveal happens it's a little off-putting because you have been buying the story as you're as you've been viewing it. And these films had a long afterlife in syndication as afternoon movies and weekend movies right. and late night movies. So generations of people yeah, watch yeah. these films on television and have been searching for them on home video. 
we have released, we just counted, about 120 made-for-television movies and miniseries through Warner Archive Collection in our four-plus years of existence. And it's a big part of what we do, and we're happy to be bringing them to you. The next one we're talking about is... Speaking of long life and syndication. <laughs> yes, because this was an adaptation of a feature film that was a modest hit, not a huge hit, but a modest hit, and uh, didn't become a series. And it wasn't inordinate for a studio to try to spin off a television series from a successful film. Alice came from Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Mash. And MASH, the FBI story, was somewhat of a motivation for the FBI. The list goes on and on and on. I think MGM was probably the most prolific at taking uh-huh. any film that was modestly successful and turning it into a prospective pilot. But this is a Warner Brothers film from 1971 called Skin Game with James Garner and Lou Gossett that was successful enough to warrant trying a TV movie spinoff that could become a possible series called Sidekicks. And you will see this written up online as a remake of Skin Game. It is not a remake. It's a continuation. But I encountered Sidekicks before Skin Game was in regular TV syndication. So when I first saw Skin Game, boy, was I confused. (laughs) I kept on looking for Larry Hagman. And it's James Garner. And if you you look for Chuck Norris, he's nowhere to be found because that's a whole different sidekick. And the basic setup for both is that this is pre-Civil War. Luke Gossett Jr. plays a a born-free black man from New Jersey who teams up with, in the movie, James Garner, in the the TV movie, Larry Hagman, who's a con man. And basically, they sell him in the south and then he escapes steal him away and they keep the money split it up and go sell him somewhere else and one can easily see that this was a dangerous choice of con actually the setup sounds very tarantino-esque really there's there's some skin game made it into django no question yeah that's what i mean like because you keep seeing these elements over and over and it's fun but this time they meet Blythe Danner along the way. And Harry Morgan. And Harry Morgan. The always engaging Harry Morgan. So we should mention that the original feature, Skin Game, is part of the Warner Archive collection and is available on DVD from us. But Sidekicks is a very different take with a lot of the same thematics and indeed one of the same leading men joined by an erstwhile uh, television favorite before he became JR, but after he Was got the genie out of the bottle. Dreaming. That's so, definitely No longer a fun dreaming, one. not yet scheming, Larry Hagman. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Sidekicks from 1974. The next film takes us almost another decade. We're now in the 80s as we discuss basically a follow-up movie to a 1970s TV series. I still remember watching this when it aired. I was This so was excited. a television event. This is Kung Fu the Movie starring David Carradine. Basically, it's just kind of continuing the adventures we, from we the TV show. We pick up with Kwai Chang. Kwai Chang has slightly more, I would say, you know, there was always the mystical side to Kwai yeah. Chang, but this is a post-Star Wars Kwai Chang. Yeah, he's it's fl- quite all right. They don't overplay it. No. His, he can levitate. In the course of the of this film, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'll just say he fights a very ninja-esque Chinese assassin played by Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son. We all know that Bruce Lee was very much associated with the original Kung Fu, so this is sort of, now we've got a Carradine and a Lee in Kung Fu. I have to say, 
Brandon Lee, I mean, there's no offense to David, but Brandon Lee's acrobatics, what, I mean, like his father, what an amazingly graceful person. And this was really before Brandon Lee's career, yep. before it showed down in Little Tokyo, and of course, he, he tragic death at such a young age. But the popularity of Kung Fu, the movie, made it one of the rare TV movies to get a VHS release. This was also, 1986 was the ninja era. Yes, exactly. You know, so, I mean, there's so, shurikens. And, right. Yes. And, but these movies had come back, you know, it was like the a high point was in the, like the early 70s, and now this was sort of the renaissance of and what are those? And, and direct-to-video kung fu right. movies. And, uh, you know, of course, Key Luke comes back yeah. as Master Poe, which is very, very welcome. And what I found very... Uh, I don't know how to broach this. The ending of this film is very yes. strange because... Although there's a very good thing happens, the big bad gets away, kind of. Well, and wasn't this supposed to be a series? This was supposed to launch a new kung fu series that eventually did come to pass as Kung Fu the Legend continues in the early 90s for syndication. With David Carradine playing the son. Oh, well, I don't want to reveal anything. This telefilm did not successfully relaunch the Kung Fu franchise for television. It would take another creative team and a few more years before that would happen. But due to Brandon Lee's popularity and revised interest in the Kung Fu property, the VHS release happened in the early right. 90s and was a major event for Warner Home Video. But there's so been the no series went to VHS and then VHS sparked the syndicated the, the show? pilot... The pilot of the first series, uh -huh. of the 1972 series, was released on VHS in the 80s. Oh. And then in the early 90s, when Brandon Lee right. was successful and was the new Carradine series was right. hitting syndication, this came out on VHS, Kung Fu the movie, in the early 90s, and it was a major event. If you compare Kung Fu to Doctor Who... <laughs> this is like the equivalent of the Fox Doctor Who movie. I, I, would, I, I would say so. There's yes. the, like the Eighth it's, Doctor, except yeah. you know, having David Carradine right. here and Throughout. so many of the elements of the original series. And of course, the original series remains one of the most beloved of the 70s and has a fervent fan so. base. So the omission of this TV movie from DVD land here in the United States seemed very odd. So we're happy to fill in the gap and bring this one to you. So Brandon Lee and David Carradine in Kung Fu the movie. Then staying in the same year. The flip side of 1986. Uh, yes, uh, uh. very much a flip side indeed. Uh, we have Club Med, which is a TV movie which was to launch a series which I sort of thought of would be Landlocked uh, Love Boat. Very much Very so. much. Interesting personal tidbit. The Club Med that this takes place at, which is the Club Med in Ixtapa, Mexico, which is actually on the Pacific coast and has nothing to do with the Mediterranean. I have been personally escorted out of that establishment by its security. Very, very good. Club Med uh, itself has an interesting history, which I'll just briefly touch on later. But in this TV movie, we've got Jack Scalia, Linda Hamilton, and Patrick McNee. And basically, there are the, you know, if you think of it like the love boat. There's troubled people from Boston, Paris, and London. Yes. And they all come together in Club Med for a week that will change their lives. That's and exactly. Or not. We, we can't let the opportunity pass by without mentioning a very young post-car wash 
Bill Maher. Yes. As well as Sinbad. Sinbad. Shirtless. Now, now, the Bill Maher character I thought was fascinating because Bill Maher's character is allowed to break the fourth wall. He plays the Isaac character, the, the wisecracking bartender. But the but he's supposed to be not funny. Right. So it's Bill Maher making fun of his own routine and talking to the camera in the very much Bill Maher way, which is saying, like, yeah, I know. It's a TV movie. What can you do? What if this series had come about? I mean, this was <laughs> it would have been a- fascinating <laughs> to think about how this could have become. And it takes place in a Club Med. It was made uh, with Club Med. And oh, it's a, yeah. It's a travel brochure and, and a romance. Club Med had been around since 1950, started in the Mediterranean as a very modest club, and at this point in the 80s had gone through uh, some different corporate ownership. But it, it's a French company, which, which now still exists, but they have a whole bunch of different rules and a whole culture that is the same at each Club Med, and they replicate that in this film very faithfully. And it makes me think in this film you have uh, musical performances from Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine who were just breaking out at the time and it makes me think of the whole Miami Vice era, the dress, the style, the whole kind of, you know, being in the sun is Pastel sport coats. Uh, It's before the melanoma mania. And lots of men without shirts. Yeah, lots of men without shirts and there's no problem that can't be cured with a little volleyball. And well, vodka. That's true to this vodka. day. Well, the vodka, you see there, you had to give them beads. Like beads were the drinks currency. and It was lack of beads that got me thrown out. Yeah, the lack of beads. And they referenced that without explaining what beads are. In this show, uh, one of the characters runs away into actual Mexico and realizes that it's difficult to survive because all she has are beads. Well, in the spirit in which you express that, I have to reference our next special, special made-for-television unsold pilot movie, which is based on a legendary comic strip by Will Eisner, The Spirit. In all fairness, George, it was a comic book insert. Oh, Is that true? Yes, it was an actual comic book that was put inside the Sunday paper. Well, so I knew it was in the paper, but I didn't know it was an insert. Yeah, it's, so it's it, a very one-of-a-kind thing, as almost everything Will Eisner did was. Now, why we should probably take a moment to describe for the people who are not as comic book knowledgeable as yourself, a little bit about Will Eisner. He's not as well-known as people like Bob Kane. But should be. There's a reason that the industry's main awards given out at San Diego Comic-Con every year are called the Eisners. Will Eisner is one of the most significant comic creators of the 20th century. He was a kid wonderkind, a good artist, but also a good businessman. He was an innovator. I mean, just the simple fact that I right. he came up with a comic book insert, insert. that was yeah. put in the papers. Uh, Which made it widely distributed. During World so. War II, he served in the military where he developed the use of comic books as instructional manuals, oh. uh, which he continued to do as a business afterwards. I mean, you know, wow. because he figured out, like, and this is a really good, easy way to teach people. But do we have to blame the IKEA instruction manuals on very, Will? Very much so. <laughs> uh, and I then think so. A spirit couch and a bank sofa. No. And then in the 70s, he returned. He'd always been keeping his foot in the door, but uh-huh. he left the industrial and went back to sort of the pop cultural comic books where he is one of the people credited with the development of the graphic novel. Uh, he had an incredibly prolific life, a very, very long one. Uh, he 
only passed away very recently, and his signature creation is the spirit, Denny Colt. And this was an attempt to bring a famed comic character to television, which happened very successfully, of course, with characters such as Superman and Batman. And uh, Sam Jones, who played Flash Gordon in the 1980 uh, feature film of the same name, was cast in this film. And uh, it unfortunately didn't go to series, but is certainly more than just a curio. Sam Jones is pretty great as Denny Colt. Now, the show tried to, like, do a fish-out-of-water thing by taking the Denny Colt persona. (laughs) Literally, out of water. Yeah, and then dropping him into the 80s. So, you know, I think the scenes in Wildwood Cemetery all work really well. They're they're The costuming and art direction work well, but then when it's sort of like he's in the 80s, there's sort of a a slightly disjointed thing. But his, Sam Jones, earnestness and straightforward with the very corny lines they gave him is really great. It seemed like, and this may have worked a little against it, it, it was all shot on the lot. Like, a lot of it was shot on the lot. But and during the day. So, you know, we, we watch a lot of noir here. But it felt very bright without being bright enough. And when it was dark, it didn't sometimes feel dark enough. Except when they went on to the set, the cemetery yeah. set, where you're like, oh, now it's very stylish. It felt and, and very, very much like, like it's a yeah. set. Yeah. It, it was, was a yeah. set. But in a weird way, I guess, at least for, as an audience now, the hyper-reality of that yeah. seemed to more catch the spirit of the spirit. Oh, and I, I, yes, I think and I that agree. the point of all these things is that if it weren't for us bringing them to you on DVD, oh, yeah. you would have no way to see them. No, this Because is... these have vanished from distribution. And if you're a fan of Ted, you're going to want to watch The Spirit. Also, yes. Yes. where the uh, Ellen Dolan, who is uh, The Spirit's love interest in the comic strip and the daughter of the commissioner, is played by Nana Visitor, who is no stranger to fans of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. (laughs) And that's where we get that nine again. There we go. Now, the last two made-for-television movies were not intended as pilots for prospective television series, but each have very special merits. And the first of them is called Killjoy from 1981. And this has quite an impressive pedigree. Very engaging mystery script, really good cast, Interesting setup, very well made. I mean, I, I had never heard of this film, and I love Robert Culp. And I was going to say, and the leading lady is a future Oscar winner. Yes, Kim Bassinger. In this film, it's very much a, a murder puzzle. But for fans of, like, nighttime soaps, it feels like it, to me, that 80s-ness is, is well, in there. Well, it's sort of like the Nancy Marchand and the dynastic struggle between the pathologist and a yes, surgeon. exactly. Yes. And what the audience can't see is that both Dan and I are, are waving Her, our hands yes. like Like, like we're doing a yang. Rubik's Cube. Yeah. Actually, it looks like they're playing with Play-Doh to me. Well, you know, it's imaginary. <laughs> but... This film is uh, quite a twisted puzzle, and wasn't it nominated or did it win an award, Dan? An I Edgar Award? it won uh, an Edgar, Which, I believe. So if you like mysteries, it's definitely twisted, and if you like late-night soaps from the 80s, it's there. And if you like Kim, she is all there. And then, as, is, as I mentioned, Robert Culp and Nancy Marchand yeah. and... John Rubenstein. I mean, it's got a good cast. It's a good mystery. It's very engaging, and you will follow right along with it. And very much uh, feels more like a midline theatrical feature versus a made-for-television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a substantial... Let's give the audience a little bit of the twist, Dan, because who is Joy Morgan? And who killed Joy Morgan? 
But that's the whole thing. I know. But I don't want to be a Killjoy and spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Killjoy is a film that will give you thrills, chills, and joy. So last but not least, we get to very somber material and very timely material, uh, given that we're approaching uh, 50 years since the tragic John F. Kennedy assassination. This is a different look at an aspect of that horrific event about Lee Harvey Oswald's widow, and it's called Fatal Deception, Mrs. Lee Harvey Oswald, and has a very young and quite magnificent Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, I mean, because I don't think most people ever took time to thought about Lee Harvey had a wife and two very young daughters. With, right. with a very interesting backstory. Yeah, but she's astounding. And she's quite young. And, I, yeah, it's Helena Bonham Carter, so, you know, sort of blowing smoke to say she's a great actress. But, I mean, it is amazing to see somebody this young, this much in command of their craft. Right. And this was um, based off of uh, writings from uh, Mrs. Lee Harvey Oswald. And there couldn't have been a more sympathetic actor to portray her because she met Lee Harvey Oswald in Russia. As a very innocent young girl. And then is taken out of the one society, thrust, you know, into uh, the U.S. of the early 60s. And, and the, very shortly thereafter, the man that swept her off her feet and took her out of Russia is the man that killed the president and is then murdered. Yeah, which is just – and when you think of it from her point of view, uh, that's a pretty upending experience yeah. to say the least. And it's an aspect of that whole period that really hadn't been dealt with until this film. And it's, it's really remarkable and riveting. Anyone that looks into it, Lee Harvey Oswald's story is not the clear-cut thing that people were told in the 60s. Lord knows what the true story is, but there's more questions than answers and there's more facets to it than most people realize. One of the things that she, her character keeps bringing up is she calls Lee Harvey Oswald's... Alec. Alec. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what he does and his deceptions and, and uh, different identities is she keeps calling them little boy games, which is almost a good alternate title. Because from her point of view, she never understood what he was doing or why. Yeah, yeah. And it, and she saw it as a, maybe games of pretend. She just didn't know. Now, this is from 1993, I believe. Yes. And the made-for-television network movie began to sort of diminish in number and become eclipsed by the made-for-cable television right. movie. Networks stopped airing theatrical features because of cable and home video. And so the network made for television movie became less and less normal and more of an event oh, there's also in this the 90s. And this was a television event. Right. And, and getting back to the pilot thing, you know, as the death of the movie of the week on network television happened, uh -huh. we entered a time, well, even back then, but especially now, there's hours and hours and hours of pilots that we are shot every yeah. year that we never see. Back then, you could see a healthy amount of them because they had a slot to fill. Right. And ones that weren't, you know, 90 minutes uh, in length, half-hour pilots would get shown 
during the summertime, right. they'd have like Vacation Playhouse or CBS Summer Playhouse or whatever because the network had paid to make this pilot and they wanted to get their In investment. My, exactly. So unaired pilots were actually a rare commodity because whoever produced them wanted to get their money back and found a way one way or another. But being able to present them in a way that is uh, marketable, the made-for-television movie format suits itself well for us on DVD. Half-hour pilots are something that we're hoping to, or hour-long pilots are something that we're hoping to be adding to Warner Archive Instant shortly. Uh, And we'll be talking about Warner Archive Instant in just one moment, but we can't eclipse our DVD releases without mentioning a family favorite that, that... Before we get to Christmas, just for the Star Trek fans out there, I oh, want to yeah. mention that Robert Picardo of Star Trek Voyager is in Fatal Deception. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we forgot to mention that one, and that one's good, but too. But does he sing? It turns because out... Because his aria to Tuvok was... Yes, yes. <laughs> well, for, forever. I think he's great. Yeah, He yes. is just a wonderful actor, and this is before Voyager... And he's uh, the straight guy. Uh, you know, you think of him also from China Beach. Yeah, yep. he's up. But what a remarkable, talented uh, gentleman, and he's great in this movie. And then let's just take it to the Cabbage Patch. So the phenomenon of the 1980s were the ugliest dolls <laughs> ever made. Oh, the you Cabbage people. Patch now, doll. I'm gonna actually just and turn this could- over. To Matt, because I don't know if you know this, George, but Matt's been to the Cabbage Patch, much like I've been thrown out now, of the club. Now, I would imagine that you might have even had one of these when you were a kid. I did uh, not. Uh, I was at an age when these not came out. Not even hanging from you a gallery. Yeah. Not, not that I, you know, because kids my age had them because they were such a phenomenon. In 1982, that Christmas, the Cabbage Patch kids were the hottest toy. And they sold over $2 billion worth of them. And in, people would fight over them in stores. Right. I mean, they would, like, you know, pull the heads off the and, doll fighting over it. Oh, yeah. And the Cabbage Patch Kids were originally created by an art student in Cleveland, Georgia, where I visited his clinic called Xavier, Babyland. Xavier. Um, who got? No, Xavier Roberts. Xavier Roberts. <laughs> There's a whole mythology Behind the Cabbage Patch Kids, the toy line, yeah. which also makes its way into the Cabbage Patch Christmas yes. special. Now, Xavier Roberts didn't actually – he didn't come up with this mythology okay. exactly in because he had been making these and selling them at craft fairs, and he hooked up with a marketing guy. Oh, so the marketing guy made, and he made wrote, Xavier Roberts part of his own creation. Yes. The phenomenon of the Cabbage Patch Kids was followed a few years later – by another television special which aired on network television was produced by Hanna-Barbera and that joins the Cabbage Patch special on this DVD and that special is called The Little Troll Prince. You will believe a troll can gnome. Now, where the Cabbage Patch Kids might have come from a very commercial product, this is a much more sincere uh, attempt at uh, taking a sort of Norse mythology, holiday parable, Scandinavian, Scandinavian folk, right, lore folk combined with Christmas, and work it into the Christmas mythology. I think we need to mention the voice cast. Oh for my gosh, Troll Prince! It's, it's a pretty spectacular. It's lineup. amazing. Lineup. Yeah, Jonathan Renners, Vincent Price, Cloris Leachman, 
And the little troll prince himself was played by Danny Cooksey, who is Sam from Different Strokes. Do you remember those years, Dan? No, that was in my non-television I period. Was, I was really oh, bummed out I that loved Timothy Sam. the Squirrel wasn't in this show because, <laughs> <laughs> oh. you know, I guess he'd gotten eaten up before they got to Christmas, uh, you know. So that's from a reference to our recent release of the Thanksgiving that almost wasn't, which is on the same disc as the Casper Halloween special. So another plug for Timothy the Squirrel never would hurt anybody. But that wraps up the nine new DVD releases we have from the Warner Archive collection this week. But it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't talk about our new wonderful, magnificent, superb Warner Archive instant streaming service, which you can see on your PC or Mac or stream on Roku very often in 1080p HD, and you can try for two weeks for free by going to warnerarchiveinstant.com. Well, I will start out with an HD. For Warner Archive, I consider this a mega hit. Actually, yes, your choice is a mega hit because... I showed George my choice. That's how he knows. He can't and, read my mind. And my choice is totally the flip side. <laughs> I I saw another choice that I thought was yours, Dan, but I picked Westworld from oh, 1973. Boy. It's in HD. Home Video came out with the Blu-ray recently, yes. didn't they? Yeah. Well, you can see it here. And this is one movie that, uh, as I've encountered it on, on television at first, over... First, I saw it in the theater. Over again. Yeah, I was I was a little young. Well, my mother knew no ratings. This, w- this, this was is, not our rating. No, I know, but it's still, you know... No, this is a freaky Today freaky you would film. not bring someone that no. age to this no. movie. okay. Well, it stars Yul Brenner as an android. As an android version of the character from Magnificent Seven. Exactly. And the setup is that in the future, you would pay about $1,000 a day to go to this theme park and interact. And there were, like I think, like a, a few different uh, West themes. World, Roman World, Medieval World. Yes, I'd go to we Roman World. had to wait for the sequel to see Future World. Toga World. And I would have gone to Roman World. Yeah. World. And in West World, uh, you know, these vacationers come and they act out their Wild West fantasies. And you can do whatever you want with the robots because they're not people. Unfortunately, Michael Crichton, who came up with the original story, also came up with the idea of a computer virus, which it's very funny to hear the concept of a computer virus being explained to the scientists. Uh, The other thing is that uh, clearly Crichton hates amusement parks. Oh, my. He sure does. Oh, my. And everything goes wrong. But in a way, everything goes right. Now, what's really interesting about this film, and it's sort of a, a staple of a lot of 70s genre hero movies. Movies is yeah. it's the accidental hero because right. the two protagonists going into the are uh, James Brolin, rugged James Brolin, yes. and then wimpy Richard Benjamin. Uh. But as things turn out, it's Richard Benjamin that, that has to step up. And it's just a fun ride the whole way. Right. And unlike Jurassic Park, which it would be nice to visit Jurassic Park just again and again, I really just want to go I've to Westworld. I wanted to go to West. Yes, yes. I can't wait until that's real. And how much fun did Yul Brenner have with this very oh. limited dialogue but you can I mean so well, like, many so many movie villains yeah like I mean Terminator. the Terminator yeah and let's also mention the movie co-stars James Brolin and Richard Benjamin and Richard Benjamin recently joined us yep. uh, to talk about The Last of Sheila and some of his other films for a Warner Archive podcast that you might want to check out oh. and shout outs to Dick Van Patten 
who has a sm- who yeah. has a part, and Madro Barrett. Yeah. This is a great time on the instant service. Dan, what is your selection? Get to know your rabbit. Ooh. Indeed. And some cineasts out there are probably thinking I picked it because... You probably just wanted to De Palma it off on us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> They're going to say, oh, he picked that because it's Brian De Palma's debut. No, no, no. You picked it because it's also available on DVD from the Warner Archive Collection. Actually, George, I just picked it because it has Tommy Smothers in it. Well, there uh, you go. And I love Tommy Smothers. And magic. Well, because uh, his mother preferred his brother Dick, you always <laughs> felt more uh, dedication to Tommy. It's true. But this was interesting because at the time, the Smothers brothers always worked together. So the fact that Tom Smothers did this on his own was uh, the I, other I recall, brother. Uh, it was an interesting. Uh, Departure, but uh, tell us more about the film, Dan. The interesting, it's a very typical sort of late 60s, early 70s. You lose your faith in society and you want to find yourself. Tommy Smothers plays a, a guy who drops out of the rat race and decides to try his hand at being a magician. The uh, film has a very engaging supporting cast. There's Catherine Ross, Orson Welles, John Astin. It's very much of its time. It very much sort of puts forth the counterculture is the solution to what ills you, yeah. but it also has that pace and storytelling. It's a comedy, folks, if and I didn't make that clear. Within a few years, De Palma would go on to become one of the major filmmakers of his generation, but this was really a small breakthrough film that has only grown in its cult and stature, and we're happy to have contributed that with its DVD release, and now you can see it in an instant on Warner Archive Instant. And it's worth mentioning the film is a very prescient look at corporate boondoggles to come. Now, my choice this week is an older classic and one which I was salivating to see in high definition and finally can do so thanks to Warner Archive Instant 1947's Possessed with one of my favorite leading ladies, Joan Crawford and Van Heflin and Raymond Massey and Geraldine Brooks. Joan Crawford won the Oscar for Best Actress for Mildred Pierce in 1945. Followed that up with The Amazing Humoresque, which is also on Warner Archive Instant uh, in HD. And then the following year, Possessed, 1947, she was nominated again for Best Actress for her riveting performance of a woman who is uh, going through a little bit of psychological overload. I don't want to give away any plot points, but (laughs) it's a noir-tinged, psychotic... Yeah, I mean, really, one of the definitive films in in that... Yeah. In the femme noir genre. And uh, you you will never think of the name Dave quite the same (laughs) as the way... And her performance is fearless. She's got no makeup on at the beginning. She's wandering through the streets like a homeless person. Some great downtown L.A. shot. Getting more familiar with her earlier career thanks to the early releases that have come Uh out through the archive and seeing this is sort of like what people think of as Joan Crawford but then when you see like the Dancing Daughters Joan Crawford you realize wow what a big career now how many people have starred in two different movies with the same title it's a great trivia question and Possessed 1931 Joan Crawford co-starred with Clark Gable uh, for MGM, that's part of the Warner Archive collection, was one of our earliest releases. So 16 years later, a totally different kind of possessed 
because this is it means something psych- very psychosexual different. possession yes. as opposed to pre-code possession. Right. 1947's Warner Brothers feature of that. But we also have The Possessed on Warner Archive Collection DVD, which is an early Harrison Ford made-for-television film. Yeah, right, yeah. So Possession possessed, is nine-tenths of possessed. the law. Have yourself a triple feature. Dan, I just was surprised that you didn't uh, give a shout-out to uh, Just Tell Me What You Want <laughs> because it has Keenan Wynn in it. It's true. Well, i got to save something. It's from 1980. Yeah, i got to keep some things in the back pocket. And and Myrna Loy's final appearance. I know, and she's actually quite terrific She's great. Film. She hadn't worked in movies in a while, and Sidney Lumet directed the film. Also, again, available on DVD from Warner Archive Collection. And Allie McGraw, Alan King, it is a Jay Press and Allen screenplay, witty New York urbane, sophisticated, biting comedy. And you get to see it in HD. HD, Woody Allen romantic comedy. Now, this week we don't have any letters to share. That only points out that we want more sent our way that Matt can read online. Can you tell people where they can send those letters? I will, and I'm going to send it with a little bit of chastisement because I feel that our audience has been relying a little heavily on Jimmy to send us letters for the letter segment. And Jimmy occasionally runs out of crayons, so cut yeah, some slack. So please, 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 just write something down. Buy a stamp, put it on a postcard or a piece of... I love postcards, and we'll put it on our art wall. If we don't get letters, I fear that you Warner Archive podcast listeners may get phone calls from Timothy the Squirrel. And Uh, that would be, oh, gosh, please send us letters. You know, you don't want that to happen. So, Especially if – now, who would win a fight between Timothy the Squirrel and baby Pac-Man? I don't know, but right now it's a contest between patience and addresses. Lay it on the (laughs) – Warner Archive Collection, B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. Please send us your mail or else we'll descend into Babel. That wraps up this week's Warner Archive podcast where we celebrate the new DVDs from Warner Archive Collection and the latest additions ever growing to our new SVOD service Subscription Video On Demand is what SVOD stands for, just for you <laughs> who are not in the industry. Yeah. Warner Archive Instant Subscription Two-Week Free Trial. Please give it a try. WarnerArchive.com is the URL that will take you to our website where you will find the DVDs. WarnerArchiveInstant.com will take you to the streaming service. So until our next podcast, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm MVP Matthew B. Patterson. Denny Colt, Armpit, Oregon. And in the spirit of the spirit, we thank you for listening to this Warner Archive Collection podcast.